Thank you so much. Good to see everybody this morning. It was great to uh, to be with you all last night and uh, wonderful to, to fellowship with you. Um, <clears throat> Brother Philip and Sister Janice were so kind to us, uh, my son and I, James, and uh, very hospitable. It's one of the marks of a, a true minister to be given to hospitality. And uh, Brother Philip and their family you made us feel right at home last night. So I want to thank them personally. Uh, <clears throat> breakfast was good. The grounds here at the church have been taken care of. Everything is set in order, and uh, and I think uh, we're ready to, to hear from the Word of God this morning. Hopefully, you are. Uh, last night, we talked uh, a little bit, uh, got started with John chapter 2, uh, but didn't get very far uh, into the subject matter, and uh, I hope that was of the Lord. I, um, Brother Phillips, right, you know, sometimes you Try to get it, give an effort and you don't enjoy it too much. And you'll have people come up and say that they enjoyed it. And you think to yourself, well, that's nice. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. I wish I had. Uh, uh, but uh, hopefully we'll, <clears throat> we'll both be edified this morning. So be back in John chapter 2. Hopefully we'll talk to you about what we planned on talking about last night. We'll just pick up where we left off. So... If you weren't here last night, just briefly, uh, this is the most famous, um, when I say most, I don't say most out of all of the miracles. I'm just saying it's it's most famous. It's very famous. Uh, the text in Scripture where Jesus has been invited to a wedding that his mother is attending. His disciples come along with him. And they run out of wine or they don't have any wine to begin with. And uh, they talk to the mother of Jesus, Mary, about this. And she says, okay, I'll talk to him, but understand something. Whatever he says, whatsoever he saith to do, do it. And that was kind of our text last night. It's a good thing to do whatever the Lord says to do. Uh, if you don't, imagine what had happened if they didn't. Uh, so we know the rest of this story. There was, um, I think, six uh, water pots uh, that were two or three firkins apiece. I had to look up what a firkin was. It's about 40 liters. Uh, so in total, there's like uh, probably 120 gallons, I think. Uh, if my conversions are right, uh, they may not be. I don't know. Oh, it's a lot. Uh, all right. It was gallons and gallons of liquid, uh, of water. And they had plenty of water. They just didn't have any wine. And I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding, uh, but um, uh, I don't know. I I, uh, I come from New Orleans. It's a very different culture there than it is here. And uh, in, in <laughs> at weddings in New Orleans, uh, people like to drink a little bit, uh, just a tad, not much. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I can imagine being at a wedding like that where I'm used to coming from and there not being any alcohol. It wouldn't last very long. People would leave very quickly and the party would be over and, of course, it would be disappointing. So Jesus turns water into wine instantly, instantaneously. And when they give, the, when they give Jesus' wine to the governor of the feasts, he tastes it, and immediately he says, wait a minute. Now, of course, anything that Jesus makes for you is going to be the best ever, 
because he's the one that came up with grapes. He's the one that came up with fermentation. He's the one that came up with all the scientific processes that have to happen for one. I mean, he's in control of nature. I always think about when he's on the bow of the ship and <clears throat> he speaks to the winds and the waves and his uh, disciples marveled when he said, peace be still, that the storm was still. I'm a fisherman. I love to fish. I love the ocean. I love everything about the ocean, the water, the waves. Um, uh, but I can tell you it's an extremely dangerous place, and you can die very quickly out there. There's no help coming. You know, on land, uh, you're always close to help, but on water, uh, there's no help coming. If you get in trouble, you better handle it, and if you can't handle it, everybody on your boat's going to die. So that's the seriousness of the situation and they all know that they're about to die these are men who can help themselves on the water and they've exhausted all of their knowledge and all of their resources and they are about to die and they know it and they wake jesus up who is sleeping and he just speaks to the winds and the waves and says peace be still and immediately not only is the sea calm but they're where they're going they're immediately on the other side and they're where they uh, started out to go his disciples say something that I think maybe may be lost on a lot of us. His disciples say, what manner of man is this? For even the wind and the water obey him. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but the, water, the word obey is usually categorized for things with, that have a brain. The wind and the water doesn't have a brain. It's not a living organism. It's not a living thing. It's an inanimate object. Things that are inanimate and don't have life are not supposed to obey anything. And yet, they obey the voice of the Son of God. He has complete control and complete power over all of His creation, including you and me, and the weather, and everything that we see, and all of creation. It's all His. It was all made for His glory. And He can control it and manipulate it and do whatever He wants with it. And we're going to get to that. And so, He does. He manipulates water the properties of water having not been been introduced to grapes, which is the way it's supposed to go, having not been, been introduced to grape juice, and turns H2O into a chemical, um, a chemical compound that we know as wine that has alcohol in it. It's impossible. It's a miracle is what it is. There's no possible way. He didn't go drop a few tablets into the water and turn it into some great flavored water juice, he said, the, and the reason I know that is because the governor of a feast who is in charge of putting on a wedding knows what wine tastes like. And when he tasted the wine, he called the groom to him who's in charge of funding the whole thing and says, listen, you've been holding out on us. You know, most people uh, let people drink the good wine in the beginning, get a little sauced, and after you can't really understand what you're tasting anymore... Then they bring out the bad wine. You gave us the bad wine in the beginning, and you saved the best until the last. This is the best tasting thing I've ever put in my mouth. Where has this been this whole night and this whole party? You should have had this out at the beginning. It wasn't out at the beginning because it didn't exist in the beginning. It didn't exist until Jesus showed up. And of course, the bridegroom has no answer for this. And so you have the first of the miracles that Jesus began to do was at a wedding in Canaan. And this was just the first of the miracles. He begins to do all sorts of miracles. And I want to run down a list of miracles, things that are contrary to nature, 
that Jesus Christ is going to manipulate nature and bend nature to his will and make it do what he tells it to do. People that are born blind are brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. He touches them, prays over them uh, in, in several different cases, rubs sand in someone's eyes, a little mud paste, rubs... The, how contrary to nature is that? Something that would cause most of us to go blind and ruin our eyes. He rubs into the eyes of a blind man and the blind man begins to see. He's blind from his birth. It's not like he went blind. He got hit, got hit in the head or something like that. And some nerve was separated and somehow, uh, you know, the nerve got put back together. He was born blind. He never had the power to see. And now he can see. And how precious is it? That the first thing that a blind man sees is the face of the Savior, the Son of the living God, who healed him. I think about the deaf people that he healed. When he would speak to them, he would, sometimes he would put his fingers in their ears. Or he would just speak to the deaf people and say, you can hear now. And they began to hear in the first words that they hear, the first voice, the first audible sound that they hear. How sweetly is it the voice of the Son of God? I mean, I'd, I'd give anything if the first voice I could hear would be the voice of Jesus. Or the first face that I ever remember seeing was the face of Jesus. There are men that have palsy. Now, palsy, I don't know if you know about cerebral palsy, but it's been around for a long time. There's different degrees of cerebral palsy. You can have it on one side, not have it on the other side. You can have it... It can affect, it's a, it's a brain defect, it's a brain injury. And it can affect uh, one arm and not the other. It can affect both arms, it can affect both legs, it can affect all four limbs. It can cause uh, learning disabilities and all kinds of trouble uh, thinking and processing. So there's different levels of severity in cerebral palsy, but it's been around for a long time. And people that have it, people that have a severe case of it, it's very obvious that they have a severe case of it. There's obviously something really wrong with these people that have palsy. And there are people that have palsy so bad that they cannot walk at all. There is no locomotion in their motion. They can't get up and walk at all. They have to be carried around on a bed by their friends. Now, what kind of friends must they have had that their friends would carry them around on a bed and shoulder the burden? I mean, that's a great picture, isn't it, about uh, bearing one another's burden. Here's a man who can't walk and he's got four or five friends that say, well, you can't walk, we can. We're going to carry you everywhere we go. And we heard there's this fellow down in Cana and down in Galilee that's doing miracles. Maybe we'll carry you down there. We can go see him. And many times people with palsy would be carried to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ would simply say, take up thy bed and walk. And they had been carried in on a bed and they themselves would pick up the bed they'd been carried on, put it on their back and walk out. It's amazing. There were many other miracles. We could go on and on and on. Jesus made, I've already recounted it to you, made the wind and the water obey him. He walked on water. That would just blow my mind. See somebody walking on water. Been around the water enough to know you can't walk on it. <laughs> and if you stay around the ocean long enough, uh, you'd be crazy to get out of a boat and try because you know it's, it's certain death. But here is Jesus walking on water. Not only is Jesus walking on water, but Peter walks on water. 
On and on and on we could go about the miracles of Jesus, but I think the most fascinating to me, the most fascinating miracle that we can ever find in the Scriptures is that every funeral the Lord ever gave, went to, He broke it up. There was no funeral that was safe in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Life, and death doesn't survive in His presence. He walks into a funeral. There's a funeral procession going down the road. He stops the bearers of the casket. Young man, arise. And the man in the casket gets up and he delivers him to his mother. And just keeps on going about his business, walking down the road like nothing happened. Goes in where a young lady has died. A 13-year-old young lady has died. 12-year-old, little, little child just getting started out in life. How tragic is that? It's not a baby, and I understand that uh, losing a baby is one of the hardest things that anybody can do, but this is a 12-year-old, which means these parents got to know this person's personality. These parents had 12 years to form a relationship and see ups and downs and, see, and, and plan hopes and dreams. And she's at, in this culture, she's at marrying age. She's about to start her life and her family, and she's cut down. And Jesus shows up and just says, come on, get out of, come on out of death. And delivers him, uh, delivers her to her parents. Stands in front of a tomb of a man that's been dead four days and has started to stink. He's been dead so long, and de his body has de has started to decompose. He's there's no doubt about it. He's dead. And uh, they they say, well, you know, I don't think you really want us to roll the stone away. He stinks. The direct quote is, he stinketh. <laughs> You gotta say, there's humor in the Bible. I mean, behold, he stinketh. I mean, that's funny. But anyway, they roll the stone away. He says, just go ahead and do it. They roll the stone away, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, the dead man, the decomposing man, is animated again and, and begins to live and talk. And his sisters are excited because he's back. If he'd been here, our brother would have made it. Well, be here or not be here, it really doesn't matter with the Lord. I can call him back from the dead. I can prevent him from dying. I can heal his sickness, whatever you need. I'm here now. He's alive now. Everything's fine. So, with all of that in mind, let's read a little bit. He, <clears throat> he really... Um, irks the Pharisees and the Jews because he, right before I read to you about what I'm about to read to you about, he goes into the temple and sees them making money, and here's how they made money. If you were living around Jerusalem, it would not have been very difficult for you to get your sacrifice to the temple. You could drag a goat or a sheep or a, carry a turtle dove or whatever you needed to do up to the temple and have the priest sacrifice it for you, uh, that wouldn't have been a problem. But let's say you were living on the outer reaches of the Roman Empire, let's say maybe where uh, southern Germany is right now, and you made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem because you were a Jewish person, you'd always wanted to go to Jerusalem, and so you've made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and you're not going to drag a goat along with you from southern Germany all the way back to Israel. And... And the Jews there in Jerusalem understood that. They knew that. So what they would do is they'd say, if you need a sacrifice, we've got some here for sale. 
But I see that you've brought German money, and we don't accept German money. And so we'd be happy to exchange that for Jewish money. And, um, of course, for the convenience of it, we're going to have to charge you a little, a little fee. Uh, but uh, the exchange rate is uh, 20%. And so we'll exchange the money, and then you can buy your sacrifice. And if there's change left over, we'll change it back for you so that you can be on your way. You see, they're making money coming and going, and they're doing it in the house of God. And this angers the Lord Jesus Christ so much so that he sits down and makes a whip. Most people think he just went crazy and started flipping over tables, and that's not what happened. He didn't lose his temper. He was just angry. And there's an appropriate time to be angry, and there's an appropriate way to vent that anger. The Lord says, let not the sun go down upon your anger. He also says, be angry and sin not. And I'm telling you, there are some things that we uh, should be righteously indignant about, and making money off of God's humble poor is one of the things that drives me absolutely up the wall. To find out that some preacher has told someone who's doing the best that they can that they're not giving enough makes me angry. So, he's angry. And he's justified in his anger. And he's justified in, because this is actually his house, by the way. So he can do whatever he wants to do in his house. It'd be different if he entered the house of Baal, I suppose. <laughs> But this is his house. And he says to them, you've made my father's house a house of merchandise, and it shall be called a house of prayer. So take these things thence, and if you won't take these things thence, then I'll force you to take these things thence. Get these money tables out of my father's house as a place of worship, not a place of merchandise. We're not going to make merchandise of the Lord's people. You notice that in a real church, there's nothing for sale. We're not selling you anything. And people will come to me and we'll talk to them. I talked about this last night. They'll come to me and say, well, Brother John, we want you to talk to us before we get married. And then always, young man, usually if he's, if he's worth anything, he'll usually say, well, how much do we owe you for your time? And I'll say, nothing. The gospel's free. And you should see the dumbfounded look on their face. I sometimes play a joke with them, though. Before I say that, I would say, well, let's see. I just told you all the things that's going to keep you married for the rest of your life. How much is that worth to you? <laughs> just kidding. You don't owe me anything. <clears throat> no. Uh, Jesus said, so anyway, his anger angers them because now they're out of a job. And they're out of a guaranteed paycheck. I mean, they, they, this was a good scheme. i got to hand it to them. This was a great money-making tool. Everybody's showing up to the temple every day. They all need sacrifices. They all have different kinds of money. They're making money hand over fist. And now he's ended it like that. And they weren't expecting it. And they're mad about it. And so they say, and I forgot to read one other passage uh, first, is that his disciples believed on him. That, that, that's the precursor of, of what I'm about to read. His disciples did believe. They said, uh, verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou us, thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? In other words, you better have a really good explanation. Seeing that you've done these things, what is the sign that we shouldn't kill you right now? 
What's the sign that we shouldn't have you arrested? What's the sign that justifies your actions? You've got to give us something to go on because we're angry and you better do some tall talking, sir, quickly. And he says, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, forty and six years was the temple in building and thou will rear it up in three days. But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was arisen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Jesus said something very profound. There's a lot of young people here, and I was a young person one time, and I was listening to a tape. I, I, this will show you how old I am and how long ago it was that I was a young person. We had cassette tapes. And if you wanted to listen to preaching, there was no such thing as Grace Alone Radio or any kind of uh, podcast or MP3s. I don't think you even do MP3s anymore, but there wasn't any CDs. There was good old cassette tapes. They took up a lot of space, and uh, you had to have a big old player to play them on. I know. But I remember I had, I had a, a <clears throat> man, I had the deluxe model. I had a CD player in the top and a cassette player in the face. And it could tune into the radio. Oh, yeah. And it had mega bass. <laughs> you could turn it up real loud. So I'm listening to a tape of this fellow I'd never heard of before. I'd heard of him, but I'd never heard him preach before. Uh, Elder Buddy Abernathy. And, <laughs> and he's, he's preaching somewhere over in Alabama, uh, uh, a foreign country as far as I was concerned. And I just I didn't know what to expect. And he started preaching about the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's exactly what I needed to hear as a teenager. And, I, and, and so I'll just touch on some of those points right now. Jesus Christ himself said his body was the temple of God. Now what happened at the temple was this. You would come to the temple to worship God. But God would also come to the temple to meet with you to honor your worship. And it is in the body of a child of God, it is in our bodies that you go to God in prayer or you bring your body to a house of worship to worship the Lord. And in your mind, you've meditated and thought and worshiped God with your mind and with your body and with your soul. But it's also in your body, your mind and your soul, not around your body, but in your body, you have the Holy Spirit. It is a possession of yours. It was given to you by God when you were born again. And from time to time, and I know you felt this, and I certainly have, from time to time when I am uh, devout and when I'm trying to worship the Lord, the Lord honors the sacrifice that I've made of my time and my attention, and He meets with me in my body. And I can feel His presence strongly. And I know that I'm in communion with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it doesn't last long, and sometimes it lasts a long, long time. And I've met with God and he's met with me while I've been uh, fishing. And I've met with God and he's met with me while I've been hunting. And I've met with God and he's met with me while I've been riding down the road. But he's met with me and I can tell you in a unique way in the house of God. 
It's not it's very different in the house of God being around other people. And I don't know if it's just because the spirit of God has compounded in all of the people that are around and there's just an exponential effect. I don't know what goes on in the house of God that's different that you can't find anywhere else. So, yes, you can worship God in the deer stand. You can worship God at the shopping mall or on the beach. You can worship God anywhere you take your body. You really can but I'm telling you something. There is nothing like when the Spirit of God is poured out upon someone and the Lord blesses His, uh, His Spirit to be in demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul says. And he only promises that that comes through live preaching. Have you ever uh, had this experience that you've listened to a sermon and thought to yourself, I was close to heaven tonight. I've got to recapture that. I'm going to go back and listen to that one again. And you go back and listen to it again and it wasn't the same. You thought to yourself, this isn't even the same sermon. I must have the wrong. I must have the wrong date or something like that. But it was the same sermon, but it was a different experience because God has chosen uh, it to be this way. He said our preaching didn't come with man's wisdom. Or the excellency of speech. But we came in fear and in trembling. I want you to know something about Brother Philip and your preacher if he's not your preacher. It's so scary up here. There have been times in my life that I have prayed before I stepped into the pulpit, God, don't kill me today. And that was no joke. I felt that I was so unworthy to take up what I was about to take up and speak what I was about to speak to, who I was about to speak to, about who I was about to speak to, that there's no possible way he could let the hypocrite open his mouth and live. It's my turn, Lord. There's no way out. I can't get out of it. It's time to go. Please forgive me and don't kill me. You've got every right to, and I wouldn't blame you if you did, and if you do, and I know I don't have any control over it because of what we believe, but please don't send me to hell. I know I deserve it. Your preacher, if he knows anything about himself and he knows anything about the Word of God and he knows anything about God himself, he knows he's an unworthy worm and he shouldn't be here. And the only way he is here is by the power of God that's going to Bless him with some mercy and some compassion and maybe some power that hour. He said, our, when we came preaching unto you, we didn't come with the excellency of speech or man's wisdom, but we came in fear and in trembling. And our speech and our preaching was in power and demonstration of the Holy Ghost. When you're in the presence of real preaching, it's not something that can be described to someone else. It's just something that you feel and you know it when you see it. You know it when you feel it. It's a demonstration. It's like God puts on a demonstration of his spirit so that it's painfully obvious that the man who's up there didn't manufacture it, but that it came from heaven and that it truly was a blessing from God. You don't get that in the deer stand. He's not promised to do that at the seashore. He hasn't promised to meet with us anywhere else. But if you bring your body to the house of God, he's promised that that's what's going to happen from time to time. And if you don't think you need it, you do. There is enough. There's enough skepticism. There's enough doubt. There's enough fear. There's enough questioning 
about what we believe and about God himself to last you an entire lifetime out in the world. That's why it's so crucial that you be at the house of God, if nothing else, but to feel that he's real one more time. Undeniably real. As he comes and meets with us and honors our sacrifice. I've had numerous conversations with people that say, well, I don't need church. I beg to differ. You absolutely do. You absolutely do. And by the way, we need you. We need each other. So it's a symbiotic relationship. We need each other. We feed off of each other. We give encouragement to one another. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is pretty fairly obvious to anybody that is wondering. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, no, you're not. He's talking about fornication and using your body in a way that's outside of the bounds of marriage. It's the only appropriate physical relationship that there is, according to the Bible. That's it. The only appropriate physical relationship, without getting into too many details, and people that are old enough and understand exactly what I'm talking about, and people that are not old enough don't know what I'm talking about, and that's fine. They'll get it one day. But if you're old enough to understand what I'm saying, understand this. There is no other sanctioned physical relationship talked about in the Bible other than that which is in the boundaries of marriage. Outside of the boundaries of marriage, before marriage, no good. And he says, and justifies all of that explanation, you can read it for yourself, I won't read it in great detail, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, especially the last half. He says, know you not, boy I love this one, know you not that you are not your own, but that you were bought with a price. And of course the price is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 or 1. It's the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself without spot, without blemish, without any such thing. Didn't offer it to you and didn't offer it to me, but offered his blood to God, his Father, who accepted the sacrifice on our behalf. No, you're not that you're not your own. So everybody going around saying, my body, my choice, false. Right, that's right. False. It's not actually your body. You inhabit something that was bought and paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his body. And if it's his body, and I'm his body, and you're his body, then he can tell us what we ought to do with our bodies, what's pleasing to him to do with our bodies, and what's not pleasing to him to do with our bodies. And he is telling us, that you need to think more, uh, 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 less about the physical boundaries of your body and more about the metaphysical and spiritual boundaries of your body, that your body is actually the house of God, that God inhabits your body, that you are the temple of the you, yourself, the body, the skin that you're in, your brain and your soul and your spirit, which are contained in your body, are the temple of a holy God. And it is in that temple that you are supposed to worship him with everything that you do, say, and think. That's pretty lofty, isn't it? My brother Buddy taught me that lesson many years ago. It stuck with me. I hope it will stick with you, young people. And if it doesn't, uh, come back and see me. We've got much more to say about that. But Jesus says, destroy this temple. 
He's talking about his body. And in three days, I'll raise it up again. And hallelujah, he did. He did raise his body again by his own volition. When he got tired of, of death, he just woke up and reanimated his own body and walked out of the tomb. And uh, when they when they got there, they were too late. He's already gone. Nobody helped him. Nobody woke him up. Nobody gave him a shot of adrenaline. Nothing happened. He's just there alone in the tomb, decides he's going to get up at the appointed time, gets up and leaves. Like it was nothing. And it's the most important event that's ever happened. It's, I, I think it's right up there with the crucifixion or right up there with the virgin birth. Perhaps more important. I hate to quantify them like that, but perhaps more important because if the resurrection of Jesus doesn't happen, the crucifixion is null and void and the virgin birth doesn't matter. And all the miracles that he did are, well, they're just fancy, but there's nothing to it. He's not really who he says he was, but because he's risen from the dead, he's everything he says he was. The crucifixion wasn't null and void. It's bought and paid for. It satisfied the Heavenly Father. And His virgin birth is significant because it makes Him a perfect sacrifice for His Heavenly Father. The only one that could have ever done it. Because He's the only one that was ever born of a virgin. We just go on and on about the majesty here. But I'm telling you that the Lord Jesus Christ's body came out of the grave. The temple that he said was going to come out of the grave actually did come out of the grave. And 40 days later, after he showed himself to his disciples with, the Bible says, many infallible truths, which means if you don't believe it, you don't want to believe it. It's not because you don't have the evidence. You have the evidence and you just don't want to believe it. And that's fine. That's between you and God. But between me and my God, I believe it with all of my heart that Jesus Christ is alive and well and seated at the right hand of the throne of God and is ruling and reigning with a scepter of righteousness. That's the scepter of his kingdom. He's not secretly in league with iniquity. He's not a secret friend of the devil, but he came to thwart all of that and put it down and conquer it and rule and reign over it. And when the last enemy shall be destroyed, destroyed, then he shall deliver up the kingdom to his father and wall will be all in all and one in one and we'll all be with him and he'll be with us. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords because of the resurrection. He is the savior of your body and your soul and your spirit because of the resurrection. What he is saying here is a prediction of salvation that no one has ever predicted and no one ever expected. They don't believe it because they don't want to believe it. They said, show us a sign. Give us a sign. He just turned 40 gallons, I think. Uh, let's be on the conservative side. Turned 40 gallons of water into 40 gallons of wine instantly. What else do you want? What other sign do you need? In other words, what authority do you have to do this? Well, I've got the authority over water. How about that? I've got the authority over death. I can wake people up that were dead. I've got the authority over blindness. I've got the authority over deafness. I've got the authority over palsy. I've got the authority over the winds and the waves and everything that's in this creation that you see around you. What else do you need? You don't need anything else. You're just choosing not to believe what you see. So I'll give you one sign. This is the only sign you'll get. This is the only sign the skeptics get. And if they won't believe this one, then they won't believe anything else. I'm going to raise from the dead. And when I do, you need to take it or leave it. 
You don't need anything other than that. And um, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. That bothered me for a long time. I thought, why would he do that? Here are some people who believed in his name. And he wouldn't join up with them. He wouldn't commit himself to them. And the scripture says, because he needed not that any should test. He knew all men and he knew what was in man. And he didn't need any to testify of him. And I thought, why not? I, I don't understand. And then I started thinking about it this way. I started rolling over in my mind. And, and what, had got, what got me started thinking this way was I was talking to Brother Sam about this. I said, what, what, is, what, is these, what do these three verses mean? And you know Brother Sam in his kind of his aw shucks way, just kind of nonchalantly, uh, no big deal. Uh, he said something, and it and it and I disappeared. I mean, he was still talking to me, but I went to another planet. Isn't that funny how that can happen? Somebody can say something to you, and just immediately you're somewhere else. And I I just sat there for maybe. It would felt like 15 minutes just thinking about this. This is amazing to me. This is what I wanted to talk to you about this morning. <clears throat> they had believed, they were believing in him because they saw the miracles which he did. They believed in his name. It says it clearly because they saw the miracles which he did. Now, it'd be hard to convince you that you didn't see what you actually saw. If you'd been in the presence of Jesus when he's doing these miracles, you'd almost have no choice but to believe that there's something special about this man. There's, there's, I may not believe everything about him or everything that his disciples saying that he is, but he can raise people from the dead. I mean, there's something to it. But they only believe in him because of the miracles. Now, the Pharisees didn't believe in him, even though they had the miracles. Then there are some people who believe in him because of the miracles, but he still won't commit himself to them, even though they. And so I, my question was this. I said, well, then what's the point of the miracles? If he's if he's not doing the miracles to get people to believe in him. Then why would he do the miracles in the first place? Miracles were never intended, and they're still happening right now to this very hour. But they're not so that other people will believe. God, Jesus doesn't do miracles so that someone will exercise faith. It's not a deal with him. Have you ever heard people make deals with him like this? If you'll heal so-and-so, I'll believe if, if you will, my grandfather has cancer. If you'll just bless the cancer, go away. I'll show up to church every Sunday. I'll do whatever you ask me to do, Lord. And then grandfather dies and that's it. The Lord didn't hear my prayer. I don't believe. Listen, 
even if he had healed grandfather, that person wasn't coming to church. Then I started thinking, it's, it's a eureka moment. I hope you're paying attention. When the man who had a son with a lunatic spirit came to Jesus, he says, my, you've got to help, and I love this. He says, help us. Help us. Ooh, man, that's brutally honest, isn't it? Because a lot of times we want to act like we're altruistic, like we're doing this for someone else. We want someone else to be healed so that someone else will be healed and they'll be happy. But really, we're so connected to them. Really, their healing is part of our healing. And we want them to be healed so that we'll be healed. Let's just be honest with each other. If my wife's sick, I want my wife to get better so I can feel better. Uh, Also so she can feel better. But if she's not well, I'm not well. Uh, If my children aren't well, then I'm not well. I want them to be well. So he says, he's brutally honest. He says, don't, he doesn't say help him. He says, help us. And Jesus says, well, um, he says, well, I, I brought him to your disciples. Your disciples couldn't heal him. And just right then, uh, the, the, the spirit that's in him tears him and throws him on the ground and he's foaming at the mouth. You can imagine the scene. And Jesus says, well, all things are possible to him that believeth. And the man, I just love this. This is this is my case. I hope it's been your case before. Again, it's just brutal, raw honesty. He's not trying to cover anything. He's not trying to uh, explain away anything. He's not trying to make excuses or justifications for himself. He says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I do believe, but there are some things that I have a hard time with. I've got some doubts and some fears. I'm having a hard time. He's right there on the ground, uh, rolling around, foaming at the mouth. And I've been praying for a long time and nothing's happened. And I just wanted to, I, I do believe that you can do it. But, but I just don't know why you hadn't done it yet. Uh, but you got to help me. I don't know. I don't see it. I don't understand. Please help me just see it or understand. What? If, please help me be reconciled. If you're not going to be healing him, just give me peace about it because I don't have any right now. Please do something, something, anything. And, the, and Jesus says, well, all things are possible to him that believeth. He says, well, I believe. And guess what? Jesus heals him based on the fact that he didn't believe. And so he's going to heal him so that he will believe. Or did he heal him because he already believed? He healed his son because he already believed, because he already had faith. God doesn't do miracles for people that don't believe. God does miracles for people that do believe. God doesn't do miracles for people so that they will believe. God does miracles for people that already believe. And it makes perfect sense with what is written in Hebrews when he says, He that cometh to him must believe that he is, must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I'm not standing up here telling you that if you'll just diligently seek the Lord and you'll believe in the Lord, and if you've got enough faith and it's name and claim it theology, the Lord will heal and do miracles in your life and nothing bad will ever happen. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if He has done a miracle for you in your past, or He's going to do one in your future, He did it because you already had faith that He could do it and that you already believed in Him. And that which brings up the second reason that, he's, that He does a miracle. It's an individual act of mercy and compassion towards you. You ever talk to someone about something that the Lord has done for them and it's truly unbelievable? Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
Somebody will say, well, my, my aunt had cancer and they went in to do the operation and the cancer disappeared. And in the back of your mind, what are you thinking if you're honest? She never really had cancer to begin with. They read the x-ray wrong the first time. I, I Maybe you're better people than I am, but that's, that's where my mind goes. I, I'm always like, well, you know, <laughs> you know, well, you know. And I'm nice. I don't say, well, I don't believe a thing you're saying. How about these people that say they've died? They coded on the table. You've heard of those folks. And they went to heaven and they saw a bright light and they came back and they're trying to tell you all about heaven. You ever tempted to roll your eyes? I know I am. Because I read in the Bible where Paul went to heaven and he was told not to say it, anything about what he saw. He said it was not lawful. He said, I don't even know if I was in the body or out of the body. He said, and it's not lawful for me to say the things that I saw. That was just for John to say in the book of Revelation. He reserved it for John. Anything you want to know about heaven, you're going to get it out of the mouth of John. There's drips and drabs everywhere else. But if you want to read the meat of the matter, go read the book of Revelation. You know exactly what heaven's all about. It's an individual act of mercy. It's, it's God confirming that he loves you. It's for you. It's not for the world. It's not for the six o'clock news. It's not for all of your relatives and your friends. Because again, they're, if they're not convinced, they're not going to be convinced by your crazy story. Now, maybe he did do a miracle for you, but they're not going to be convinced by your miracle. You understand what I'm saying? Which makes perfect sense and it goes right in long, along in line with what he told the leper. The leper, he's entering into a city. There's a leper sitting at the gate begging. He comes and he heals this man of leprosy. And what does he tell him? Seest that thou tell no man. Doesn't this make perfect sense about why every time in the scriptures you read? It never made sense to me. My entire life I'd read about Jesus doing some miracle, some miraculous thing. And then it would tell the person that he did the miracle for, don't tell anybody. Now, why would he do that? Why would he say, don't tell anybody? I think that we should give glory to the Lord. I mean, it seems like that would be a thing to glorify him in. I go around telling people about the miracle that the Lord did, but the Lord knows that the skeptics won't believe it. The Lord knows that if they didn't believe in the resurrection, they're not going to believe in your miracle story. They're not going to believe in Jesus because he did a miracle for you. They're not going to believe that the miracle was ever even done for you. Actually, don't go tell it. Just thank the Lord as he told the leper, go and offer your go and offer this healing as uh, for a sacrifice to the Lord. as Moses commanded. In other words, keep it between you and the Lord. You keep that close to your heart. You glorify God in it. You believe it. And that's good enough. You don't have to tell the world. You don't have to convince the world. It's just an individual act of mercy and compassion. Him telling you. I love you. You're special. I'm going to do you a favor. Here you go. How special is that? I know I've had some done in my life. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you about them. They're special to me and they're personal to me. And yours should be special and personal to you. He needs not. He needs not that any should testify of him. He doesn't need you to try to convince people. 
based on some miracle that he's done for you. You know how he'll convince people? He will write his laws in their mind and upon their hearts. He will testify of himself to his children. He doesn't need you to do that. God bless you is my prayer. Thank you for listening so intently today. Appreciate y'all having me.